0: Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down.
1: (laughs) When Brooke Shields was ten years old, her mother bundled her into the car and took her to a friend's house. Brooke was taken into a luxurious bathroom, undressed posed and photographed while her new friend, an old man named Hugh Hefner, delighted in what this meant for Playboy magazine. The world exploded in controversy as a little girl was sexualized, building her career on pretty babies and nobody getting between her and her Calvins. And the adults didn't quite know
0: what to do with it all. When Michael Jackson was ten years old, he went to this new place called Motown, and signed a record deal with his brothers. Most of us, regardless of how old we are, learned the ABCs of love from him. We didn't know it at the time, but when he sang I'll Be There, he really meant it. The music world was changed forever, and the adults didn't quite know what to do with it all. When Andrew
1: Churchwell was ten years old, He
0: was a decent kid who didn't
1: like to be disrespected. It made him very angry. He was so filled with tiny, impotent rage that he took his father's gun and shot him dead. And the adults didn't quite know what to do with it all. This is the story of the murder of David Coy Churchwell by his son, Andrew Churchwell.
0: Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. In the past we shared the five fatal personality types of youthful parasite offenders. If you recall, they're first the erratics. These angry, violent children are often referred to
1: as ticking time bombs by their friends and relatives. They are often involved in drug use and are seldom abused by a parent. However, they are more likely to have engaged in parental abuse, menacing and abusing their parents before the murder. These murders are often tied to their anger. The people we have covered so far that are erratics are Christian Ryan Romero and Jenna Smythe.
0: Next, we have alpha brats. These attention hogging children are often charming con artists and are very much in charge at home. If an accomplice is involved, that person was carefully groomed for the job of hitman. Alphabrats are seldom abused and often indulged. However, they do allege abuse more than would be expected, statistically speaking. The murders are usually planned and very well planned. The two children we have talked about in prior episodes are Nikki Reynolds and Matthew Worcester.
1: Third, we have the Anarchists. These broody kids appear to be convinced they are of a superior race to all those around them. They deem themselves more clever than anyone, however, in the end, they most certainly are not. This category of killer is most likely to try and kill others, like a mass murderer type aspiration but they don't tend to be very successful. They are strategic and often view their parent or parents as an obstacle in need of removal. They are often involved in drug use and approximately one third will allege abuse that will never be substantiated. Yet more of them engage in parental abuse than are abused by their parents. These murders are equally planned or spontaneous. So far, we have covered John Hovey and Danny Petrick.
0: Fourth, we have mission-oriented. You will find an underlying goal in these murders. These are the children most likely to allege abuse that will never be substantiated. The murders are seldom spontaneous. They are more likely to attempt and be successful in killing other people. The one person we have covered in this category is Billy Gilly.
1: His mission was gross, but he was very focused.
0: Yes, he was.
1: Now our last group, but not least, is the tightly wound category. These are kids who have learned to tightly control themselves. They follow community mores, and they are very good at secret keeping, often in an effort to keep themselves safe. But I don't mean to imply that they are all abused children sometimes they are keeping themselves safe by concealing dark secrets about themselves these children are much more likely to experience abuse and are significantly less likely to allege abuse that will remain unsubstantiated so they're not usually crying wolf not one of the children from this cluster was known to have menaced a parent prior to the murder And two of my favorite episodes so far covered tightly wound children. They were Larry Schwartz and Herman Dutton. My favorite's the tightly wound. Ah,
0: very nice. Why do you like the tightly wound the best? I just think they're really
1: interesting. So they're kids who have learned to really tightly control themselves. And they're not the sort of kid that everyone's looking at waiting for something bad to happen. They follow the rules of the community. They're just very interesting and kind of unique.
0: They are. I agree. Do you have a favorite group? Um...
1: You can't pick tightly
0: Wound. I already picked them. (laughs) I think that I really find the Alphabrats to be interesting, but research-wise, I really like the Anarchists the best.
1: Okay, so what do you like about the anarchists?
0: Well, the anarchists are interesting because, just like all of these other categories, you might be able to fit kids into the categories that mm-hmm. aren't murderers. They're kind of unique personality types, kind mm-hmm. of like with Sims. You give them a little bit of this, a little bit of that, take away some of this, and it changes the flavor of the kid. With the anarchists, you have children who are fairly well-behaved most of the time, unless they're disrespected. Mm. And the disrespect seems to be what sets them off. But a lot of times they see being punished like any other kid is disrespect, right? Yes, they can see being punished as disrespect. Um, It always reminds me of how I met your mother Mm -hmm. and Lily. Lily is the perfect anarchist because we aren't thinking of anarchists that are always dark and dangerous. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're very pleasant and very happy to make people happy. They think Mm -hmm. they're superior to people around them because they follow the rules to make people happy. But when they decide that they've been disrespected, the kink in their personality comes out. So kind of how like Lily was like this
1: sweet artistic kindergarten teacher but then she stole pants from the Gap because someone was rude to her.
0: Yes. Or she stole that baseball from someone in her dorm. No, from the mean boss. Oh. And she stole that baseball from the mean boss. hmm Like that. so oftentimes the anarchists aren't really creating damage as much as they're creating mischief. hmm It just depends a lot. If you think of Lily... It depends a lot on their temperament, mm-hmm. if they're easygoing or if they're kind of grumpy. And most of the kids in the murder category fall more toward the broody. Mhm. So they're very interesting.
1: They'll sit and ruminate on these perceived wrongs. Yes. Okay. And so, what about alpha brats? Do you find interesting?
0: Just that they're kind of bratty and kind of pushy. Mm-hmm. Um. I, their stories are interesting. They're con artists, so their stories usually have something to hold your interest there. They are attention hogs. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not always the most pleasant to be around or to see, but they're interesting to research.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's interesting the way that the power dynamic is often flipped with their parents.
0: Yes. Daddy, I want some money. No, I don't have any money. And she gets in his pockets. Mm -hmm. Um, Holly Popovich would do that.
1: It's really kind of unusual and probably something most of us don't see too often. I agree. So where does Andrew Churchwell fall?
0: He's actually an anarchist. If you listen carefully, you'll be able to see the signs of anarchism.
1: Okay, so a sense of... Well, let's call it a strong sense of self and a surprising response to feeling disrespected.
0: Yes, I would say both of those are absolutely on spot. So David Coy Churchwell and Vicki Ann Turner married on May 11, 1968. Source materials don't really provide a lot of information about this couple, They appeared to be your typical Midwestern family who were decent people living a comfortable middle-class lifestyle that was quite under the radar. They were working, spending time with family, and focusing on bringing up their kids. They had a son Tony in 1970, and he was an only child for 13 years, until July 3, 1983. That's when their second son, Andrew Scott Churchwell, was born.
1: So his brother would have been 23 and long out of the house by the time the murder
0: happened? Yes. Okay, so he was essentially an only child. He was. The parents had the children with such a long space in between them that they really didn't have two sons as much as they had two separate families. Mm-hmm. Both David and Vicky worked. He worked for General Motors, and Vicky, at some point started up an elder care facility, which is now an assisted living center called Cozy Lil Acres. At some point she sold her interest in this business and was a legal assistant for a local law firm. As you said, their older son had moved out of the home to start his own life. He also appeared to be your typical guy from the Midwest who stayed out of trouble and simply lived his life. This left Andrew living at home with both of his parents and his little dog, Buster. Ten-year-old Andrew was a very polite kid. His principal called him polite and positive, and his fifth-grade teacher said he was always helpful and that he always tried hard to do well. He sounds like a great kid. Yes. Um, A lot of the kids who are anarchists, if they aren't pulled off track, Mm -hmm. are great kids. They have a strong sense of basically superiority, Mm -hmm. so they will try to act superior, Mm -hmm. which often manifests as very well-behaved. And successful.
1: Like, they're going to work hard at school because they want to be seen in a positive way.
0: Right. Right. And they want to be seen as that superior person that they are. hmm They usually have rules that they feel need to be followed. And it seems to be that set of internal rules that can get them in trouble. hmm
1: Because they really don't like it when someone breaks their rules.
0: Yeah, like that. Like we talked about Lily. Ah, uh, from How I Met Your Mother. Mm-hmm. And how she is very pleasant... Mm -hmm. She doesn't have a disagreeable temperament. She's very agreeable. But when her boss disrespects her and is cruel to everyone, she steals his baseball that he values above everything else.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's not constantly rebellious.
0: But when she's disrespected, someone's going to pay for it. That's right. She wants to make sure that they know that she knows.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And they've broken rule, and they're going to be punished. Right. It's like that.
1: Okay, so when did the murder happen?
0: On April 20th of 1994. Andrew's mother was at work for the evening and he was home with his dad. That was cool with Andrew. He knew his dad would watch TV and he and his dog Buster would pretty much have the run of the house if Buster would only behave. And of course, Buster didn't. He was a bad dog. Aren't they all? Buster broke the rules in the house that night. Source materials don't indicate what exactly he did, but it appears Buster used the house as his personal potty. Andrew's dad was pretty mad. He scolded Andrew for what Buster did. And he told him to take his puppy and go outside. And, as per Andrew, his dad left him out there with Buster forever. Well, at least what felt like for 20 minutes. Then his dad told him to take his shower and go to bed and it wasn't even eight o'clock yet. This was unconscionable.
1: Even just from the story, you can really tell this is a kid. His biggest problems are he was punished for his dog's bad behavior, and he has to go to bed before eight.
0: Yes. Andrew, filled with righteous indignation, couldn't remember ever being this mad. What right did his dad have to do this to him? He decided what he had to do and spent that early bedtime making his plan for revenge. And then he waited. He knew his dad would fall asleep on the couch before his mom got home, because he always did that. Hiding in the dark of his room, Andrew waited for signs of sleep. Slowed breathing, nodding head, possibly some snoring, and Dad was out. Andrew quietly crept out of his bedroom and headed to the gun cabinet. Taking care not to make a sound, he selected the perfect shotgun and quietly and stealthily crept over to the couch where his dad was sleeping. Taking careful aim, Because he knew that first shot would be the only one that counted, he shot him in the head. He hadn't really thought about what he should do after that, but he did know one thing. When his mom got home, there was going to be the kind of trouble that he didn't want. So, he found himself making a choice. He either had to face his mother or face the police. He had to hurry because his mom would be home shortly after nine, really any minute now. He picked the police, thinking he might get a better deal there. And again, we see how young he is. I think any adult would have picked mom. I think so, too. He called Buster and headed out for the one-mile walk to the local police station, where he turned himself in and confessed. The police found him to be very polite and helpful. And the adults didn't quite know what to do with it all. Well, this can't be the first time in the world that there was a child who was this young killing his parents.
1: Well, maybe not the first. And, Wisconsin did have state laws in place for children. They called this the Children's Code. These laws had been in place since 1970, and they set the age limits for juvenile offenses. Specifically, they governed when and at what ages a child could be found to be delinquent. Delinquent is not the same thing as criminally guilty, it just means it's a child in need of reform. Okay. So if they were found delinquent, then the kids would go to a place called Baby Jail, which is like a lockup facility or like reform school kind of thing.
0: Oh, so like Ethan Allen, the reform school in Delafield, Wisconsin? Yeah, like that. And it was based on the idea that children
1: who are committing crimes or who are doing things like running away a lot just need some help and can be kind of rebuilt like children are more malleable than adults. Oh,
0: okay. That makes sense. Except yeah. they didn't know all of these kids, did they? No,
1: I think that we'll see in a minute these have to be reformed a bit, the codes themselves.
0: Oh, okay. Because sorry. of the crimes children are committing. Okay, sorry to jump ahead.
1: Oh, no, it's it's a big topic. Um so in 1994 at the time that Andrew killed his father, Mhm. The Children's Code stated that kids couldn't even be found delinquent for any crime until they turned 12.
0: And he was 10.
1: Yeah, so this code doesn't even cover him, technically. Um, But then, as an added twist, a child had
0: to be at least 14 in order to be criminally charged with murder. Okay, so wait a minute. The Children's Code is set up to say... Children are children and make mistakes and are malleable and can easily be reformed. hmm And before the age of 12, they won't even do anything that looks criminal. I think that was the theory, yes. Okay. And then from 12 to 14, they're really giving kids a lot of breaks. hmm And then at 14, they can be waived into adult court as adults and be charged criminally.
1: That's right. Yeah. So the criminally charged means that they're not in the juvenile system anymore.
0: Oh, okay.
1: All right. So like we were saying, this code is based around the idea that children are going to be in the juvenile system and whatever they do, they can be reformed and released back into society at 18. Fixed. Yeah, they can fix it, Um, which I think is logical if you're a little bit on the naive side. Like if you think, and I think most people think Oh, year oh, eight-year-olds, what are they doing, stealing candy bars?
0: Right. Oh, okay, I see that. When people are angry that children are being charged as adults, they're not understanding that a decision has to be made, that the child could be left in the juvenile system for murder, or they could be charged as adults for that same murder based on the circumstances of the child? That's right, in okay. most states.
1: Um, okay. I haven't checked all the states, but at least in Wisconsin, that's how it works. Okay, all right. By 1994, they did know that their code wasn't perfect because earlier, a 15-year-old boy named Peter Zimmer murdered his family. Don't worry, we'll cover that case next time. Okay. Peter Zimmer, people were really upset about this. And it wasn't that people were saying, oh, we want to send all children to prison. They were just really upset about the idea that a 15-year-old, Peter Zimmer, or a theoretical 16 or 17-year-old who committed murder would commit murder and then in three years could be set free based solely on his age, not on actual reform, not on whether he was no longer a danger to society, but just he would only serve three years for a murder or one year if
0: he was 17. Because in the juvenile system, they're released at the age of majority, 18 or 19 or in some states 21.
1: That's right. It's really not a great idea to give people a sentence for murder based on how old they are. Like if you commit a heinous murder at 17, you would get one year. Whereas if you killed someone in a less heinous way at 15, you would get three years. And that just, that's not a good sentencing guideline.
0: Well, that reminds me of Danny Petrick because he murdered his mom and tried to kill his dad at the age of 17 and really pushed because he wanted to be seen as a juvenile so he could get out at 18.
1: Yeah, and then he would have served one year for murder that was premeditated.
0: A pretty nasty murder.
1: I can see why people don't like always treating someone as a juvenile because you have to really make a more logical decision. And so waving them into adult court or some of these new mixed or blended sentences mm-hmm. might make more sense.
0: Okay, so you were saying something about the public being angry about Peter Zimmer?
1: So Peter Zimmer had killed his entire family, which is a pretty disturbing murder. And then if he was treated as a juvenile, under the Children's Code, he would have been released in just three years, which turned out to be exactly what happened in this case. And he did continue to be a menace to society and probably would have benefited from some more time in jail, which is where this idea of blended sentences come in, where you can have them in juvenile court, and then they reassess when the child turns 18 or reaches the age of majority. And then they might go to adult prison if they have not kind of changed their ways, shown genuine
0: remorse. I think a lot of states have moved to this, and I think that it's very wise. It allows Mm -hmm. the judge to go, oh, I'm not sure about this child. So they can be in juvenile, the juvenile system and reform school. But if that doesn't work, they can pop them into prison and see what happens there.
1: Yeah, and not every murderer can be reformed. But I also believe that not even every murderer who can be reformed can be reformed in just one year.
0: And yet some of the kids go through the juvenile system and are perfectly fine. At the end, they can release them, and Mm -hmm. they don't have any other troubles. So I like that judges have that opportunity now where before they were forced to make them a juvenile or an adult, and it was a clear, bright line.
1: Mm -hmm. Because then if you're not sure, you would have to make them an adult just to play it safe, but now they have this option to kind of make it individual to this case. Which I, like I think. that. Is, yeah, I think it's more appropriate. But anyway, so in 1993, the Children's Code had been revised because of the Zimmer case, so that children aged 14 and older could be waived into adult court. But no one had contemplated that a 10-year-old might be a murderer, much less a parasite offender.
0: And they were right. Andrew, at that time, had the dubious distinction of being one of the few preteen parasite offenders in the nation back in 94. At that time, you could count them on your fingers, but you did have to work hard to find them.
1: We talk about many of them in our fourth episode, Only the Good Kill Young. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't listened to it, it's well worth your time. It's really interesting to see kind of the texture and the flavor of how different it is when a young child kills and...
0: Anyway, you'll just have to listen. Okay. <laughs> so, when... So, for this one, because he's 10, he can't go to juvenile court because he's not yet 12. Mm-hmm. And he can't go to... He can't be waived into adult court. Yeah, because he's not yet 14. Okay.
1: So, the problem is, they don't have a place to try him. They can't try him in juvenile court. They can't try him in adult court. Even if they did find a way to try him, and they did convict him where would they put him? Because there are no accommodations in prison
0: for a 10 year old boy. Oh, I have seen a couple of cases in other states where a 10 year old boy is put in solitary confinement in prison to keep him safe. And that's cruelty.
1: That's horribly psychologically damaging.
0: Yes. It's
1: damaging for adults, but at that age, developmentally.
0: Yeah, I know we've gotten off into the weeds a little bit. Anyway, so Andrew is literally going to get away with murder? Well, that's kind of what we're thinking, right? But Mm
1: -hmm. they did do what they could within the guidelines of the Children's Code. What they did was they deemed him to be a child in need of protection and services so that he could enter into the softer side of the juvenile system um, and they could try to rehabilitate him as he lived among the children who had committed minor crimes like shoplifting or running away from home.
0: Oh, and the kids in the foster care system, too.
1: Yeah, so he was kind of just put in the... It depends on each different state, what they call it, but there's a way to take care of children who are not doing well. They might be missing a lot of school. Um, they might be foster children. Alternative care. Yeah, it's alternative care. Okay. Um, so not quite, you know, a juvenile detention facility, but it was kind of what they could do at the time.
0: Oh, they couldn't send him home to his mother.
1: No, they couldn't. Um, they really just didn't have... Any way to cope with a child murderer of this age,
0: and he obviously needed treatment, right
1: Yeah, he needed a lot of care, um so I think they did honestly a pretty good job with a really unique situation mm-hmm. in the end. In his little corner of the world, Janesville, Wisconsin, Andrew had changed the world. Well, his family's world for sure, and the legal world for many states, including Wisconsin, who quickly cobbled together some laws that lowered the age that a child could be waived into adult court for murder. Oh,
0: that's very true.
1: Yeah, it's interesting Mm -hmm. when we get a case that literally changes the system. So... I think it's important that we address abuse because I think from the story, it's surprising that he would be so angry over being sent outside with his dog for 20 minutes. Did they investigate
0: abuse? They did. And it revealed there was no abuse in the home. They asked Andrew if his father had hit him. He said, no, he'd just been very upset with him. He'd yelled at him, sent him outside with the dog, which I'm sure it was to make the dog go to the bathroom in an appropriate spot. And that incensed Andrew that he had to go out with the dog. Mm-hmm.
1: So, was Andrew's father generally a, like a violent or
0: scary guy? No. Like I said before, his parents were pretty much under the radar, just typical Midwesterns who were trying to live a good life with their children. Mm -hmm. Um, His father didn't have a criminal record, and Andrew was reported as not having an extensive juvenile record. So I think there must have been a little bit of something there. Mm -hmm. The police also reported there were no drugs or alcohol involved. Andrew told the police he thought his dad had been drinking, but they did a test, and his father hadn't been drinking at all. There were no mental problems in the family. The only problem they had was a little boy who felt he was too superior to be spoken to in such a disrespectful way. That is so interesting. It's an anarchist.
1: Yeah, and I'm so glad they did the investigation because, as we've seen, not doing the investigation leaves so many questions, it's hard to decide what really happened.
0: Well, there's so many Rumors out there about abuse being the reason that children kill their parents when it's only the truth in 15% of cases. 15% is too many, of course, because we don't like abuse. Yeah. But treating all kids like they're abused gives a lot of kids free pass. And doesn't address the real problems that
1: we're going to have in society. Right. So I think it's important and very helpful to go. Well, it's almost unbelievable that this is all that happened, but in many cases it is unbelievable. I think that the idea that it's all because of abuse is very comforting because then we feel like as long as we don't abuse our children, this could never happen to us. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter, like most stories, is it's a lot more complicated.
0: That's why I performed the cluster analysis to see if we could kind of pinpoint those nuances and better contextualize what happens in these families and using that as our scaffolding we've noticed that you can kind of pick out what's happened and why that kind of child has murdered their parent. Mm -hmm. We have seen a lot of overlap with the big five personality types
1: because Mm
0: -hmm. that temperament seems to be really important in these murders.
1: It's interesting because when we talk about murder in general we talk about these big overarching factors and when we do this podcast you get to see the little nuances um, and the differences between the children and you can really see how the groups kind of clump together
0: Mm -hmm. that's very true So you said that Andrew entered the softer side of children's services, that he lived with the kids who were runaways, kids who entered foster care even for abuse or abandonment, and he lived in residential treatment until he turned 18? He actually only lived in residential treatment for the next four years. What ended up happening to
1: him? At the age of 14, he returned home to live with his mother. What?
0: Why was he returned home? Do you know?
1: Well, remember anarchists, are usually pretty compliant. They go along with society. If you remember when he was in school, he was described as polite and helpful. He did well in oh, residential treatment.
0: Okay, that makes sense. They felt he was adequately treated and they released him. That's right. Oh, okay.
1: But they didn't understand anarchists. He had always been able to comply and get along with rules as long as the rules were clear and he felt they were fair. After he was released and returned home to live with his mother, he continued to have a rough go of it. And of course, that meant that his mom did too. He grew up and had a long-term relationship with a woman he clearly loved, and they had a couple of children together, but there always seemed to be a little bit of trouble following him, despite his being polite and helpful within the community. When his relationship with the mother of his children ran into trouble, Andrew wound up pleading guilty to federal stalking charges. This was only in 2005.
0: Oh, federal stalking charges are serious, aren't they?
1: Yeah. So I'm guessing what happened is that he felt that she was unfair in leaving him, and he got angry about it. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then on June 9th, 2014, he beat his now-aging mother. Mm-hmm. He was worried about getting into trouble with the law because he was harboring a gun, knives, a machete, a crossbow, and two pellet guns in his house. And as a felon, because of the stalking charges, he was not supposed to have any
0: weapons. Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah, so he continued to kind of believe that he could do what he wanted and anyone who opposed him was being unreasonable and should be punished. He ended up brandishing a gun and telling his mom that if she reported the assault to the police, he would use the gun to kill himself and any officers who got in his way. But it was too late. The police were already on their way to the house. He fled out the back door as officers prepared to enter the home, and he rolled his car in a nearby farmer's field in his haste. Leaving a trail of debris, according to the Gazette Extra, that included tons of ammunition and magazines for 45-caliber handguns and AK-47 assault rifles. Oh. Yeah, I mean, he had a, a veritable armory of weapons. So, did he shoot himself? No, he didn't shoot anybody that day, because they found him trapped and unconscious in his overturned vehicle. He was charged with aggravated battery against an elderly person possession of a firearm by a felon, and possession of marijuana. Other source material claims he was charged with drunken driving, but I wasn't able to confirm that. A court hearing was set for November 3rd, 2014, and he faced a maximum of 10 years in federal prison if he was convicted.
0: I'm sure that did not set well with him.
1: No, Um. and again, he's someone who did fine in society, Except for when people treated him in a way that he felt was disrespectful. Which we see again, his mother's neighbors, who had met Andrew and got to know him pretty well over the past five years, they described him as polite and nice, despite knowing about his violent past.
0: Oh, that's interesting, because usually people have a strong bias against someone that they know to have a violent past. Mm -hmm. So if they're calling him polite and nice, he's got to be over the top nice, Yeah, I think that he was genuinely pleasant to be
1: around as long as you
0: didn't disrespect him. So if his hearing was first set in 2014, we know that it usually takes a year or two before the trial actually occurs. So what happened with him?
1: Well, on July 12, 2015, Andrew Churchwell died at the young age of 32. Oh. Yeah, and there was no apparent cause of death. But the Gazette Extra stated that the exact cause of death would be determined after toxicology tests were completed. So, either an overdose or a suicide most likely.
0: That's really sad.
1: It is. And the federal charges, they were still outstanding. He had some injuries still lingering from the rollover, which had resulted in spinal surgery and some infections. So this had all delayed the judicial process somewhat. Interestingly, his uncle, Jeff, who was an English teacher in the Milton School District, made a statement for the press at this time. He said, "'Being of partly Scottish pluck, "'we naturally have a desire to defend the family honor. "'We don't want pity. "'We just want an opportunity to restore intact "'the Churchwell family name, restore the honor. "'We just want to work hard and implement the idea "'that the greatest thing you can do is serve others. "'We're taking this opportunity in our lives "'to try to come back.'" We
0: talk a lot about this as a family. That's so odd. I don't think anyone was looking down on their family. From the analysis that I did, it looked like the family was well regarded within the community.
1: That's true, and a lot of people didn't like this statement. There was some public outcry because of this, because people felt like Andrew was likable and his family was respectable. And even Andrew was respectable despite his trouble with drugs and kind of
0: anarchist style violence. So we know that Andrew died, and what happened to his mom?
1: His mom died about a year later, in March of 2016. Oh. Yeah, it's really sad to see most of the family wiped out so quickly. Interestingly, that Uncle Jeff comes up again, and this anarchist personality seems to run in the family a little bit. The Green Bay Press-Gazette ran an article on what Uncle Jeff had been up to for the past several years. Now, remember, he was an English teacher at the Milton School District. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So this, you know, kind of quiet, honor-obsessed English teacher, and he's this man who's, in 1999, he'd spearheaded a movement to change the school mascot from red men to something less offensive. So he was kind of an activist. Yeah, this kind of progressive man, just kind of exactly what you think of with an English teacher. hmm That movement actually did not pass the school board vote, but he did his best. Ah. Uh. So this is where you can see that this Uncle Jeff, who was a pillar of the community, had some anarchist flavor, too. Okay. So on October 8, 2019, he was headed into Nature Land Park there in Whitewater, Wisconsin, when he was pulled over by the police. You know, went about like normal. The officer asked if he knows why he's been pulled over. He was unhappy about it and said no. And the officer kind of, you know, waits patiently and says, would it help to show you pictures of why you're being stopped?
0: Whoa. They have pictures?
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of a surprise, right? Yes. This pretentious posturing kind of dissolves. And Uncle Jeff hangs his head and mutters, Going to the bathroom. What? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And that was exactly why he'd been pulled over. But the officer wasn't finished. He says, What do you mean? Like, in a park bathroom? Facetiously. And Uncle Jeff humbly mutters, A number two. What? He defecated in the park? Like a dog? Like a dog. Just like Buster. (laughs) But not just once. For two years. Two years? Mm Mm-hmm. For the past... (laughs) It's preposterous, right? This English teacher had been pooping in the park for two years. (laughs) I'm dying. I'm dying. But wait, it gets better. For the past two years, he would stop by the park on his way to school and take the time to defecate on the park grounds oh. on a building. A what? Sometimes several times a day. Oh my God. Uh yeah, it's unbelievable and I feel so bad for the park employees. Like I don't even understand why. But he would, you know, have a quick wipe and then make his escape. <laughs> he admitted to authorities that he was doing it partially for convenience, but mostly to be disrespectful. Oh, there's that disrespect. Mm Mm-hmm. His pompous pooping cost him $365 in fines and $5,705 in restitution. (laughs) I hope that park employee
0: got that money.
1: I hope so, too. That is horrible. (laughs) And it may have cost him his job because he quickly retired from teaching in the aftermath of all this. Mm. But he wasn't done. He wrote a letter of apology to his arresting officer Although, as far as I know, no apology to the park employee who had to clean up his poops. And he said he was sorry, and he realized he'd made a mistake. A mistake? For two years.
0: Yeah. That's a big mistake. It was very strange. But listen to this
1: self-serving letter. Okay. He said, I am so disappointed in myself. I have the great opportunity to teach political rhetoric. In this class, I stress the importance of involved citizenship. And there I am, being a lousy citizen of Walworth County. He continues, claiming he is sickened by his own hypocrisy, and then adds, As well, after really thinking about what I did, I came to the conclusion that I allowed my thrill-seeking,
0: self-indulgent pride and ego both to get the best of me. Oh, you can see the anarchist at work there, even in his statement. I'm superior. I teach political rhetoric. I'm sorry I got caught making my mistake in the park for two years, but pride and ego matter.
1: Yeah. And he said, I mean, he clearly felt disrespected approximately two years ago, (laughs) but he never says who in the park offended him. So this is like small scale anarchy. Lily taking the guys baseball.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we strongly considered making this the title of the podcast. Um, some play on Uncle Jeff and I think it should have been called The Poopy Podcast.
0: (laughs) The Poopy Podcast. Okay.
1: (laughs) But we thought better and and I hope we haven't offended anyone's sensitive
0: ears. (laughs) Is that it for today?
1: I think that's it. We'll end on that note. So what do you think? Are you starting to recognize the five fatal personality types? Let us know. You can contact us at Parasite Podcast on Facebook or Instagram, or Twitter,
0: or you can simply email us at ParasitePodcast at We'd like to thank Jay Brown for our music, and the Green Bay Press-Gazette, the La Crosse Tribune, the Wisconsin State Journal, and the Capital Times for a variety of information and photos we used for this episode. There are no photos of the evidence used in Uncle Jeff's prosecution. Thankfully. <laughs> A couple of our fans
1: reached out and let us know they couldn't find our Patreon page. Thank you for letting us know about that glitch. It's fixed now. And now you can lend us support while earning yourself a tax deduction at patreon.com slash Podcast. Let's thank our newest patrons. Okay. We would like to thank our newest patrons, Jason A. and Rob S. for contributing to our show. We really appreciate your contributions. Thank you. Thank you for your support. And we will see you in two weeks.
0: Bye. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs>